Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, This is Communion Sunday, and so children, we're glad that you're staying with us in the worship service this morning, no children's church. And begin just by saying that one of the things that's been clearly impressed upon me over my 12 years here at New Life, sometimes painfully impressed upon me, is the truth that God moves people. I mean God physically moves people and moves them not just from one house to another house across the same town, but moves people to different towns altogether, to different communities, to different cities, to different states, and sometimes even to different countries. So, to those of you that have been here the entire time that I've been here at New Life over the past 12 years, I am grateful that God hasn't moved you, but he's moved many others during that 12-year period of time. Some have been staff members that have moved away. He's moved elders and deacons from us. Some of you have had children move away during the past 12 years. We've had countless college students who we've loved ministering to during their short time here who have moved away in addition to that many dear friends. And it it might seem like the amount of moving is amplified because we live in a college town, but the truth is that God has always moved people. He moved Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He moved Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans into the Promised Land. He moved Joseph to Egypt against his will, and he moves Elijah, the prophet. And so in our series on the triumph of God and the ministry of Elijah the prophet, we last left Elijah at Kareth, where the Lord is providing for him there by drinking from a brook and by feeding him with ravens in the morning and in the evening, while the rest of the Israelites are actually suffering under the covenant curse of the drought, brought upon by the fact that they've turned from the Lord to Baal worship under the rule of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel in Israel. But now the Lord moves Elijah from Kareth. And we read about that in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 16. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open them to the book of 1 Kings. Again, we're going to be in chapter 17, picking up in verse 7. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Our text can be found on page 170 in those Bibles. But again, looking at 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 16 this morning, if you've found that passage, I invite you now to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. 
Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. You can see that we're not told exactly how long Elijah remained in Kareth, but it was long enough for the drought to dry up the brook from which he was drinking. And so it's evident that it's time for Elijah to move on. If the drying of the brook didn't make that evident enough, the explicit word of the Lord in verse 8 to move on makes it clear. But we should be clear that the Lord is not moving Elijah from Kareth because the brook is drying up. He could have sustained the brook indefinitely had the Lord wanted to. He's moving Elijah so that he can dispense the blessings of his word. He's moving Elijah to dispense the blessings of his, of his word, but not where we might expect. The God of all of the nations relocates Elijah, his prophet, to sow the blessings of the word in Zarephath. Remember, this God is the God of the nations, and he's relocating his prophet Elijah so the blessings of the word can be sown in Zarephath. And so as we see Elijah the prophet in this passage moving to Zarephath. I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to consider the destination of God's word. And then second, I want us to look at the demand of God's word. And then finally, we're going to look at the deliverance of God's word. But we want to start with the destination of God's word in verses 8 through 10. I know we just read this, but let's put this before us once again in verses 8 and 9. We read that the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So there's a couple of things that we want to consider in connection with this destination of the word. And the first is the who. There's a who to the destination of the word, and it's to a widow. And it's interesting here because the phrases widow and feed you are not things that typically go together. Kind of like the word civil war. They don't really go together. The phrase exact estimates don't really go together political ethics don't really go together i'm sorry i couldn't really resist that one but in elijah's day widows would have very little means to actually provide for themselves let alone anyone else but perhaps because of the lessons that elijah learned at kareth we read in verse 10 that he arose and went to zarephath just like the lord said perhaps reasoning that if the lord could provide for him in the midst of a drought through a brook and through ravens to feed him, that the Lord could also provide for his needs through a widow. And so he goes. But there's a second thing we also need to consider when it comes to the destination of the word, and that is the where. Elijah is sent to a widow in Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now, whereas contemporary scholars debate the exact location of where Kareth was, we know it was on the east side of the Jordan, but we don't know exactly where it was. That's not the case of Sidon location was clearly known in fact it's still known today Sidon's located way up here in the north outside of the land of Israel and it's still a city today 
So not only do scholars know where it was, they know where it is. Sidon is still a city that exists today. But notice that it's still well outside the bounds of Israel. Something we looked at before is that as Elijah moves to Kareth and now to Zarephath, he's going outside of the boundaries of Israel as a form of judgment upon Israel. The word is withdrawing from them. But we see more than that here. The Lord is drawing near to this widow in Zarephath because what we're seeing here is the Lord has a heart to bless the nations. He has a heart to bless all people of all races by sending Elijah to bless in Zarephath. And that sets a pattern for us. We are also to be a people who desire to see blessing come to all people and all nations and all races. But we also need to recall from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. So remember, we laid a lot of groundwork before we actually started looking at the ministry of Elijah the prophet itself. And one of the things we looked at as background was Ahab and the cultural condition in Israel at the time and his wife Jezebel. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, that Jezebel, the king's wife, is the daughter of Ethbaal. And Ethbaal was the king of the Sidonians. And so understand what's happening here. The Lord is sending Elijah to the supposed home turf of Baal and to the former stomping grounds of Jezebel. So that the very region that spawned the queen of the Baal cult in Israel will now be the region that witnesses the power of God's word to provide. It will be the region that provides for God's prophet himself right there where Jezebel was from. And so truly, as Psalm 2 says, the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs at those who try to oppose him and to oppose his word. Because the encouragement here for us is to recognize that God's word cannot be silenced, it cannot be stifled, it cannot be chained, it cannot be bound, it cannot be rendered powerless, but it will accomplish whatever God intends to accomplish by it, wherever he intends to accomplish that. The word of God is powerful enough to break through any darkness to bring light and to bring life. Even if that is breaking into prisons, even if that is breaking into godless, secular classrooms on campuses, even if that's going to godless, intolerant countries where the word of God is outlawed, and even if that is breaking into Sidon. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. The word of God is powerful to bring life. And yet, God is enlisting unclean Gentiles to experience the power and the privilege of that word to bring life because Israel has rejected that word by turning from God and turning to Baal. The blessings of that word are now going to Zarephath outside of Israel because of Israel's rejection. And it's this tendency for Israel to reject the word and as a result of that rejection, that word going to the Gentiles, that causes Jesus to bring up this very thing in the New Testament. He refers to, he refers to this exact occasion when the Jews in his hometown had rejected him. And Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, he says, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, to none of the widows who were in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
Now the point that Jesus is making here is that just like in Elijah's day, the people of Israel are still rejecting God's word. But now they're rejecting the word incarnate. They're rejecting their Messiah. But as they reject this word, he reminds them that God sends his word to Gentiles when the covenant people refuse to bow and submit to his word. So Elijah going to a Gentile in Zarephath anticipates the day that the word will go, the word of the gospel will go to the nations because of Israel rejecting their Messiah. In fact, this is exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas say in Acts chapter 11, verse 46, when they say to the Jews, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jewish people, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's what happens. Israel is rejecting the power and privilege of God's word to bring life and blessing to them. And now they're only going to experience the power of the word to bring curse. It's not that their unbelief renders the word ineffective. It will still accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. But in Israel, unbelieving Israel who's turning to Baal, they're only going to experience the power of that word in curse. The blessing of that word to give life will be experienced and enjoyed by a Gentile widow and her son. But before this Gentile widow receives the blessings of the word, she must hear the demand of the word in verses 10 through 13. Again, we read in verse 10 that as Elijah is arriving at Zarephath, he comes to the gate of the city and he sees a widow who's gathering sticks. Now, we don't know how Elijah recognizes this woman as a widow. We don't know what prompts Elijah to even speak to this woman. Had the Spirit of God revealed to him that this was the woman that he intended to provide for him through? Text just doesn't say. But Elijah asks her for a drink. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of, of another story in Scripture when I read about Elijah asking this widow for a drink. And it's the story of Jesus, the greater Elijah, also asking a woman for a drink who was a woman, a Samaritan, at a well. And that request by Jesus ends up leading to the salvation and deliverance of this Samaritan woman, just as this question by Elijah ends up leading to the deliverance of the widow, as we'll see in a moment. So it's hard for us not to think of that story. But Elijah is asking for a drink of water. Simple request, right? I mean, no big deal. It's just a drink of water. Except remember, it's in the midst of a drought where water is a precious commodity. And surprisingly, we see in verse 11 that she goes to get him some water. But then as she's fetching this water, Elijah asks another question. He makes a second request. Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And now it's in her response in verse 12 that we discover the depth and ex extremity of her poverty and the hopelessness of her situation. Because she informs Elijah... Interestingly, she informs Elijah by oath in the name of Yahweh his God, which just adds another interesting layer of intrigue and curiosity about this entire encounter. How does she know that Elijah's God is the Lord, is Yahweh? Well, somehow she knows and she informs him by oath in the name of the Lord your God that she doesn't have anything prepared for him. In fact, she says she only has a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And she's out there gathering some sticks so she can go back into her house, prepare one last meal so she and her son can eat it and then die. All of her resources are depleted and she's down to her very last meal. But knowing this information about her situation does not deter 
Elijah. In fact, he presses in even more, almost to the point of appearing callous and insensitive to her situation. The Lord said he was going to provide for him through a widow, and so he essentially asks in verse 13, says in verse 13, that sounds good. Go ahead and go in and make what you were going to make, but first make me something and bring it to me, and then make something for you and your son to eat. This is actually a staggering demand. Remember, Elijah is a stranger to this woman, and he's, he's asking for the first portion of her last meal. I mean, what gives Elijah the right to ask for this? How is this going to help the widow? How is this even an appropriate request or demand to make of someone that you've just met, to make of a widow, and to make of a mother whose son is starving before her very eyes? Elijah's just met this woman, and yet he makes this demand. Well, once again, it's always needful for us to remember when we're reading through the Elijah narratives to remember that Elijah is not just some ordinary guy. Elijah is God's prophet. He is the word bearer of God. And so the demand that Elijah makes upon this widow is the demand of God's word upon this widow. And as extreme and severe as this demand might appear, it's actually the same demand that the word makes upon each and every one of us. Because we have to understand this, the word calls us to give nothing less than everything. You are under a false impression if you don't recognize this to be true. The word calls us to give nothing less than everything. The word comes first. The word has priority in the life of the believer. It has priority over your desires. It has priority over your plans. It has priority over your comforts. The word calls for submission in every square inch of your life. It requires at times for us to crucify affections and feelings that we have. It calls us at times to bury dreams that are not in accordance with God's will. It demands everything. And every aspect of our life is to be brought into submission to the authority of God's word. Not just our actions. It is true, our actions are to be governed by God's word, but also the words that we speak. How we speak those words. And it goes beyond our words as well to things no one else is aware of. Our attitudes and our thoughts are to be subject to the authority of God's word. Our thoughts are not our own. Our thoughts don't ultimately belong just to us. They fall in the authority of God's word, as does everything in life. Your work, your marriage, how you treat your spouse, your parenting, how you raise your children, what you do with your body, how you spend your money, how you eat, how you use social media, what you post on social media, how you are entertained. The way that you watch a sporting event is to be governed by the word of God. The movies you watch and the way that you watch a movie, the music you listen to and the way that you listen to music, the clothes that you wear and the way that you wear those clothes, the way you resolve conflicts, everything is to be governed by the authority of God's word. And this authority of God's word extends to us to obey not just with parts of our life but the entirety 
of our lives, and it calls us to obey not just when obedience is convenient and comfortable, but when that obedience is costly to us. Uh, The Christian author, Kay Arthur, I think is spot on when she says this, if you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to him, then don't begin. If you have no intention of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. And to explain why the demand is so total, John MacArthur succinctly, I think aptly, offers this. Unless God is the number one priority, he has not been given his rightful place. And the way that we give God ultimate priority is by submitting everything to him and to his word. This widow must put the word above herself, above her son, and above her life. And so must you, and so must I. That's the demand of the word for all of us. But the encouragement here for us is that the demand of the word never comes to us apart from the promise of the deliverance of the word. And we see that in our text in verses 14, 15, and 16. Elijah instructs this widow, even in the midst of telling her to make him something first, to get the first portion of the last meal, he says, don't fear. And then we get the reason for that in verse 14. He says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is not the promise of Baal, by the way. Baal can't make this promise of blessing and life. It's the God of Israel before whom Elijah stands, the God that Elijah serves. He says, this is what God says, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. It will be sustained for as long as you need it by the Lord. And so what we see here is that God may ask for everything. God may ask us for everything, but it's because he intends to give us even more. God intends to give us even more than everything, if that's possible. Isn't this what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 24? He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever gives up everything for me, will save it, will gain life. God wants us to put down the earthly things that fill our hearts and that fill our hands in order to fill them with something better. He's asking us, to offer to him these lives that are fleeting and passing away and mortal so that he can give us life that is enduring and immortal. There's a well-known quote by the martyred missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred in South America, and it's a well-known quote for a reason. It's an excellent quote, and it's worth repeating here. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I'm sorry. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There's no fool to do that. And like all idols, like all of our idols, Baal has left this woman and her son empty and hopeless and at death's door. But she does what Elijah asks her to do. And as a result, this widow and her son, these Gentiles in verses 15 and 16 in our text, are enjoying what Israel has forfeited They will enjoy the power and faithfulness of the God of Israel to bring deliverance through his word, to bring life and blessing. 
Read again what we have in verses 15 and 16. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household, meaning her and Elijah, her entire household, ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So once again, just as we saw at Kareth, the Lord does exactly what he said he was going to do because the Lord is faithful to his promises and he's powerful to bring those promises about. The Lord will be faithful to what he has promised you because he's powerful to bring that about according to his word. He does according to his word. But this time, he's doing it not just to provide for Elijah as we saw at Kareth. Remember, Elijah was by himself then. But now he moves Elijah outside the boundaries of the promised land so he can bestow those blessings and those provisions upon Gentiles in Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. But also, just like we saw at Kareth, there's a certain kind of humility in God's provision. He's providing for a widow. And he doesn't provide for her by giving her this lavish pantry full of luxuries. It's the same jar and the same jug the entire time. And the jar and the jug do not overflow. But they never run out. There's a certain humility in this, that God miraculously sustains the same jar and the same jug. And so every day at mealtime, this widow would witness the grace and the power and the faithfulness of the God of Israel to provide blessing and life. Every day at mealtime, she'd be reminded of that. And how often in just everyday things that we experience are we able to witness the same grace, power, and faithfulness of God to provide life and blessing for us. And yet there's one thing we definitely shouldn't miss here, and that is to experience the blessing. This widow had to believe the word of God spoken through Elijah, and she had to obey. She had to believe and obey. You see, she's confronted with a decision here, and there's no way that she can dodge it. She can either accept the word of Elijah in faith or she can reject that word in unbelief. She can either comply with the demands of the word and receive the promise, or she can reject the demand of the word and forfeit the promise. She can either cling to what little she has in this world that is passing and perish, or she can offer everything that she has according to the word of the Lord and have life. And notice that she isn't given any proof as to what will happen ahead of time. She has to walk by faith and not by sight. And amazingly, this widow doesn't tell Elijah to get lost. <laughs> she believes and she obeys. But she believes and obeys because of the same reason that a woman in the New Testament in Acts chapter 16 believes and obeys. And her name was Lydia. And we read there that the Lord opened her heart to believe. And that's what's happening here. The only explanation of this is that God, by his grace, opened her heart to believe and obey and receive life. But the truth is, we're confronted with this decision in the gospel. We can either reject Jesus, the word incarnate, and perish, or we can offer to him all that we are and all that we have. We can give to him ourselves and our life and find life itself through him who is the greater Elijah. Because when we think about Jesus as the greater Elijah, there's also a destination 
and a demand and a deliverance. But Jesus is the greater Elijah. His destination was not just to foreigners and strangers outside of the boundaries of Israel. His destination was to come to rebels and enemies against God's kingdom. People like me and people like you. And he came to fulfill by his life of perfect obedience every demand of the word so that through that fulfillment he could bring deliverance to sinners. And yet the deliverance that we read about of the greater Elijah is greater than what we're reading here in 1 Kings chapter 17. Because God does deliver this widow through Elijah by sustaining the jar and the jug. But the greater Elijah offers us something greater and far better than just sustaining a jar and a jug. He offers us himself as living bread and living water. In fact, he offers his very body and his very blood to confer upon us eternal life. And so actually the elements on this table, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, bears witness that Jesus offers his body and his blood for sinners to redeem them on the cross where he gave up his body, which is represented by this bread, and where he poured out his blood, which is represented by this cup. But as you behold the elements on this table, make sure that you see here that we're reminded that although God may ask us for everything, he gave us everything first. The Father gave his Son first. Jesus gave his life first and now calls us to give him everything as the one who has already given everything for us. But there's a decision, isn't there? You can either reject Jesus, not give yourself to him, and experience death, not just physical death, but eternal death, spiritual death. Or you can give yourself to the one who gave himself for you and find eternal life in him. Physical life, resurrection life, in the new heavens, the new earth, forever and ever, dwelling in eternal glory but also receiving spiritual life now. In the moment that you believe in Jesus, you have spiritual life. Spiritual life is to be walking in fellowship with the living God by faith in Jesus. And so if that's you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, if you're trusting in him, if you've given yourself to the one who has given himself for you, and if you've made a public profession of your faith, and if you've identified with him in Christian baptism, either as an adult or a child or an infant, and receive these elements this morning. Feed upon Jesus by faith. And know that just as the jar and the jug were sufficient to sustain this widow's life through the entire drought, the body and the blood of Jesus given for you is sufficient to sustain you through all eternity. Be assured of that as you receive these elements. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here and you haven't given yourself to Jesus who gave himself to save, rescue, and deliver sinners. If that's the case, know that we are glad that you're here. But we do have to ask that you refrain from participating in this sacrament, refrain from taking these elements. These elements are for Christians, for those who believe in Jesus and who are feeding upon him by faith. To encounter Jesus apart from faith, even to encounter him in these elements, is to encounter Jesus in judgment and condemnation of your sins. And we don't want you to fall under judgment. Instead, we invite you to look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Give yourself to him 
who came to deliver sinners and find life instead of death. And it is true. Let's make no mistake about it. To give your life to Jesus means to seek to obey all the demands of the word. It transforms your life. It gives you new life, a life of obedience, striving to follow Jesus in everything, yielding yourself to him. But giving yourself to Jesus also means remembering that Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the demands of the word perfectly. And so in giving ourselves to Jesus, we're trusting in him to be the one who forgives us for all of our failures and we're looking to him and finding our only hope for ultimate deliverance from condemnation and our sins. Not through our own obedience that we, re- that we render to the demand of the word, but only his obedience that delivers us. We read in John chapter 6, verse 40, these words of Jesus. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you haven't done so, look to the Son. Put your faith in Jesus and know eternal life. Have the promise of resurrection life and glory. You can do that today right now, and no spiritual life in Christ. I know that's a big decision. You might want to talk to somebody about that. You might have questions about that. Please come see me before you leave this morning. The Bible calls all of us to partake of this sacrament in a worthy manner, and so it's right for us to spend some time preparing our hearts, and we're going to do that by singing of the wonderful cross where Jesus gave everything for us and where we encounter a love so amazing, so divine, that it demands my soul my life, and my all. We're going to sing of that now.